Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What do you think of when I say opposites attract? And and the caveat on this was I was going to try to get this to not be about relationships because we've mm. recently talked about relationships in, in, in my personal experience. Um, that never worked out for me. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so uh, uh, relationship or otherwise, opposites attract. What, what comes to mind? Um, well, your relationships, I feel like you have to have tolerance for We're opposite. not talking about me. Oh, we're, oh, we're not talking about you. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, well, no, Brian, go ahead. Tolerance for opposites. Okay. <laughs> so Brian and I are very different. So, or we're very different, actually. I feel like okay. we've grown more the same. We've like over 20 years, right? But so when we were in college, when we first started really dating, we were walking to a restaurant once and like a surveyor stopped us on the street and they were doing like, I forget what the survey oh, like was even questionnaires. about. Yeah, yeah. So they started asking, they said, we could do you both at once and started doing the survey. And Brian and I literally answered the opposite to every single question. <laughs> Like literally, and the guy, the guy was looking at us like, "What? Where are you how, going with this? Where do you think you're going with how your long lives were we together? together?" By that point, um, oh well, like officially, maybe a year, or like less I mean, than a still. year, but on and off for longer. But yeah, but I feel like we both saw in the man's eyes that he was just like, "Okay, well, see where this is going." Did you all question? You're like anything at that point, you just thought, ah, this is dumb. No, because we were young and we were like, oh, <laughs> politics. We don't have to have the same politics. And then oh we just gosh, like argued a... with each other for 20 years until we're like basically like met in the middle. I feel like there you <laughs> just, go. Yeah. <laughs> so not not quite so incompatible as it no. would seem. No. Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. Today we're talking about two incompatible elements of fire and water. And to tell us more, I'm going to bring in producer Avery Shinneman. Hi, Avery. Hi, Shane. Okay, so paint this picture for us. I recently made a short two move to Topo, New Zealand, um, and there's this incredible lake here, Lake Topo, and it's just this massive lake sitting in an active volcanic caldera. And so much of the landscape here that I'm learning about is evidence of interaction between the two, kind of between fire and water. And it got me thinking about it, and I wanted to learn more. So today we're going to hear from two scientists who mainly study volcanoes and both also have something to say about how water in these volcanic environments can make things a little bit interesting. First, we talked to Jim Kawahikawa in Hawaii, who had a front seat to the exchange between lava and water at the summit of Kilauea a few years back. Great, let's get into it. My name is Jim Kawahikawa, and uh, I was born and raised in Hawaii. Currently, I'm a research scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey stationed at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. And our mission is monitoring the active volcanoes in the state of Hawaii. What got you interested in volcanoes? I got interested in volcanoes while I was uh, growing up on Oahu, which is an island about 200 
miles away. And uh, there were frequent eruptions on uh, the island of Hawaii, where I live now. And many times when lava would go into the ocean, it would produce pumice-like particles that would float to the other islands. And so, you know, we would go down to the beach and pick up these little pumice pieces from the eruptions. So I got interested in the volcanoes at an early age. So I know that Hawaii is a unique place because it's in the Pacific, but it's not its not part of the volcanic ring of fire. Right. Instead, Hawaii is on a hot spot, a place where the Earth's crust is being heated up directly from the hot mantle below. It creates a string of active volcanoes as plate tectonics move the crust over that hot spot. And Kilauea is the Hawaiian volcano currently erupting, right? So small eruptions mostly, but all kinds of really interesting things going on there. So in any landscape, what I'm most interested in are the lakes, but it turns out that the most notable lakes in Hawaii are not full of water, but lava. And Kilauea has been topped by a large lava lake for most of the last couple of decades. The lava lakes generally form in craters, so the, uh, the receptacle is already formed, and then the lava gets deposited in there. The lava lake that we had in uh, between 2008 and 2018 was rather unique in that it was very active and it was small. So that, um, you know, the lava is very hot, of course. And uh, like when lava flows, the lava will start to cool on its outside once it gets exposed to air. But this lake was small enough that and active enough that it never crusted over. So it was always active. It was always bubbling and uh, venting gas and things. But it was... It uh, formed by what's called in geology, stoping means that it kind of melted its way up from below into a crater and then opened up a, a hole on one side of the crater and the lake was just sitting there. And through its 10 years, it, it pulled off parts of its rim to get bigger and bigger, but it was never really that big, maybe a couple hundred yards across. That, that seems like a fairly big lake of lava to me, but maybe that's small. <laughs> the biggest one that I can remember is, was probably about a, a mile across or something. And uh, But, you know, as the, the lava level in the lake fluctuates, and so it can, it can become, as the lava levels drops, it might form two or three separate lakes. But then when it rises, it all becomes one lake again. So a typical behavior of Kilauea volcano is that um, lava is, or not lava, but magma is stored beneath the summit area somewhere, probably not very deep, maybe uh, three to five kilometers deep or so. At times that reservoir or reservoirs get pressurized and uh, they will push lava up towards the surface, which is what happened when 2008 Lava Lake started and got pushed up in a very narrow um, dike or so up to the surface. But when, when the whole system gets pressurized, it very often pushes out into radio rift zones. And so in, in 2018, because the summit had already adapted to having a lava lake up in the summit, that, that eruption was kind of sealing that part off. And so by the time all this stuff started to try to balance out, 
the lava that was, the magma that was underneath the summit pushed out all the way past Oahu into this lower East Rift Zone. When, the, when all that was over, when the smoke cleared and everything, there was a big pit in the, in the summit crater, the summit caldera, that was uh, deeper than the Empire State Building is tall, even if you consider the antenna on top that King Kong hung off of. That's a, that's a good reference point. I like that. <laughs> it was very deep. So now there's a big crater that used to be a lava lake, but now the lava has disappeared. Exactly. So the big question, there's groundwater, there's rainfall. So I asked Jim, what's going to fill in that space first, lava or water? Yes. Um, in fact, that was one of our main worries early on. We knew from geophysical studies that there was a shallow water table underneath the summit. It always interested me how all these eruptions could come right up to the surface through that water table without creating explosions or big things like that. And so uh, the, the folks in charge at, in the 2018 time frame were trying to do some modeling to see why that happened, how that could happen. And whether once the, once the magma, the real hot stuff, was withdrawn, how fast it would be for the water to come back into the conduit area, the area beneath the, that lava lake. So that's the big concern is that when the water flows into a space where the lava already is, that you get an explosive reaction. Yes. Um, some previous geological studies have shown that uh, the one big eruption under Kilauea that killed um, at least 80, 80 near several hundred people uh, happened in 1790. And the main mechanism interpreted for that eruption was a mixture of water and magma under pressure so that you know when it when it couldn't expand farther it would blast up rocks and gas and such and so we were really worried that that was going to be a repeat scenario but it did not seem to be the case based on modern uh, modeling and, and uh, modern thought so then the concern became more of a research concern is that you know we've got this hole there is a water a research well one mile to the south of this deep hole that is showing water in it at a depth shallower than the bottom of this hole. So how long is it gonna take for water to come back into the hole? And we didn't want it to come back too fast, obviously, but you know, how long will that happen? How long did it take for it to actually fill into something you might've called a lake, you know, where the water was persistent and getting deeper? The hole remained empty for about a year little less than a year. And so the water showed up in the very deepest part. It filled rather slowly. And so it kept, it kept filling until December of 2020. And at that point, it was 50 meters deep, not a lot of water. The water itself was fairly hot, 70 to 85 degrees C. Was it otherwise like what we might think of as a typical small lake? It wasn't fresh water. It was uh, fairly strongly hydrothermally altered. It was um, uh, it was saturated with calcium sulfate, which we suspected because uh, when the 2008 lava lake finally made it up to the surface, it blasted out some rocks to open the the crater itself, and those rocks 
many times are covered with uh, a mineral that comes out of calcium sulfate. But yeah, it was it was uh, kind of weird water. It was um, dark, you know, we couldn't see through it. It wasn't clear. Um, had a pH of four. Um, not too bad. <laughs> for, for a volcano lake anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any, was there any microbial activity? Was there anything living in there or was it just... You know, we never got the chance. Um, our university colleagues were eager to get that kind of a sample, but it required it required procedures that we were not ready to do in our UAS work. For, to do that kind of sampling, everything had to be sterile going into the lake, and we just were not prepared to do that. And how long in the end did the did the water last? And how long did it take to drain out when it left again? Because now we're back to a state where, where it's at a lava lake again, correct? I think it was something like 14 months there was water in there. And then when the current eruption happened, of course, all that water boiled off because the eruption happened within the lake itself as well. After taking more than a year to fill, the lake just boiled away, just like that? It must have been pretty dramatic. It was quite vigorous, you know, the, having magma or lava directly connected to the water, in fact, in a lava lake, um, in a water lake. It was a very explosive interaction, which we had seen before when lava flows go into the ocean. But it was not, it did not build under pressure. There was no containment of it. And so it was just kind of boiling off. It did gener generate a steam plume that was about 14 kilometers high. But it only took 90 minutes to boil all that water off and produce this 14-kilometer-high plume. Wow. And it, was, it was very dramatic. So is there anything you learned from watching this eruption and, the, for example, the, the minerals that were coming out in the groundwater that might help you identify it in the past now? Could you look for this in the rocks, knowing what you know now about what happened? You would hope that would be the case, but no, um, because it was um, like the anhydrite mineralization that occurred during the on the rocks and the 2008 stuff. It's highly dissolvable, so anything that was left around would have been washed out by rain in a few years. This may have happened many times before, but we wouldn't know it from what we see now at the volcano. Well, yeah, we don't have any evidence of it happening in the last 200 years. But yes, it could have happened before that. And the only record we have of that is uh, Hawaiian chants and stories. And none of that, none of them clearly identify the existence of a water lake in the summit. However, I will say that when we get heavy rains um, in the summit area, there are temporary lakes, little pools that form, but they don't last more than a few hours. So there was, ever so briefly, a water lake at the summit, but we don't know much about how it functioned, what may have been living there, just that it was there. And pretty suddenly wasn't anymore. Yeah, watching that pot boil for 90 minutes until it was dry must have been really something. It turns out that in that same eruption, there was another lake, Waiopele, or Green Lake, that had a much longer history on the landscape, but even shorter demise than the 90 minutes or so that it took to lose the Kilauea Crater Lake. Green Lake, uh, the actual name is Waiapele, which means water of Pele. So it's about uh, 20 feet deep, six meters deep, really. Um, it's less than a hectare in area, or was, I should say. 
And so, you know, it took 90, 90 minutes for lava to burn off the summit lava lake, summit water lake. This thing went in a flash, probably seconds, as the whole lava flow went into that lower, uh, the lake interior of that crater and took it out. I, I was in the air at that time, right around it. I could see the plume come up. And uh, by the time we made another round, it was gone. The lava going into the lake was so fast that it was just gone before anyone realized. Yep. That's pretty incredible. Except for the what, steam. A lot of people saw the steam plume. Right. And what does it look like now? Is there evidence? Did the lava fill in in a way that you can see an impression of a lake basin, or is it just gone? The Wyopelli water lake got filled with the first lava flow that went through there, but there were several after it. And so all you see now is evidence of that last set of flows around the crater that it was in. And uh, you have no sense of where the lake was. If you imagine being a geologist, you know, a thousand years from now and the rocks have eroded away, do you imagine there'd be lake sediment still in there that you could see any evidence at all? Or is the lake utterly gone? Probably if you drilled through the lava flow, you would find that that sediment there was certainly a lot of sediment, you know, the because the sediment is still there. Of course, it's baked now, so it might be a bit hard. But um, yeah, no, there's you'd really have to look and have to know where it was before you even invest in the drilling to get there. Sure, I'm imagining someone puzzling out like one fish fossil deep in a lava flow, some future <laughs> um, geology course. Yeah. All right, lakes can evaporate in a flash and lava flows that erase them from the landscape. Do we know anything about how this will continue into the future? I asked Jim about that, what they're looking for in future research. And as the volcano changes over time and the sort of flow of magma and the flow of lava changes, I imagine that would also change where the groundwater is able to go. Yes, it'll change, um, you know, it'll change the subsurface structures and now confine water to certain areas, but it will also build up new ones. When I first started working for the survey, I was interested in answering that question about how eruptions can come up from depth through the water-saturated rock, probably, you know, a kilometer or more water-saturated rock, and you would never know. There's no explosions or earthquakes or anything that are related to that interaction. And uh, the best that we can come up with so far is that as it's coming up, it slowly sealed its way up there. So that only small amounts of water are really interacting with the hot temperatures. And do you have a, you have a hypothesis about what it is that's holding the water up at the summit? Well, we think it's uh, the same mechanism, you know, the, um, the sealing off of normal ways that water would flow back into the out of the ocean. In the summit, there have also been a number of explosive eruptions. And so there's probably layers of ash, which is very fine. They would probably make almost like a clay layer in there. And it might be water that finds it difficult to go down because it can't go through these layers and it can't go sideways because of the structure of the caldera. So it could just be sitting there. That's really interesting.
The way I see it in Hawaii, I have this feeling that the fire is kind of winning. These small lakes form, but are really ephemeral. Losing a whole lake in seconds is pretty wild. So I'm actually in New Zealand right now. I moved here for a bit. And I talked to someone here about a pretty different kind of caldera lake. Ooh, watch out. It might not be there in a whole 90 minutes. Well, uh, this lake is a whole lot bigger. And the eruptions here are pretty different as well. Yeah, my name is Finn Ilsley-Kemp. I'm a research fellow at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Um, and I moved here as part of a large research project, which was looking into the caldera volcanoes in New Zealand and was aiming to better understand them and better prepare New Zealand for any future unrest or possible eruptions from those volcanoes. And for a starter, just for the you know podcast audience... Could you give us just a like two-minute overview of why we're in such a volcanically active region in New Zealand? What's happening here that's making that, that's setting the stage for all these volcanoes and, and calderas? Yeah, so New Zealand is part of what's often called the Pacific Ring of Fire. So the volcanism and, and also a lot of the earthquakes we have here in New Zealand are primarily driven by subduction. So um, in New Zealand, we have... Essentially, the whole country is on the plate boundary between the Pacific plate to the east and the Australian plate to the west. In the North Island of New Zealand, this is this manifests as a subduction zone. So we have the Oceanic Pacific plate to the east is subducting beneath the continental Australian plate to the west. And this subduction, through typical processes of subduction, transports water and volatiles down into the mantle beneath the North Island and that in turn drives the production of melt and volcanism at the surface Um, and that in the north island we actually have distributed volcanism in the north island it's quite an amazing area and i think as a newcomer here and certainly if um if you don't have a detailed knowledge of the caldera volcanoes i think your eye is is primarily drawn to the mountains we have the 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 andesite volcanoes such as ruapehu and tongaluru which are to the south of Topor. So those are those are quite typical volcanoes that we get at subduction zones. And they're beautiful volcanoes, very big mountains which stand out in the landscape. And so those really um, kind of catch your eye firstly. I think also, especially in Topor, but also to the north in um, Rotorua, there's an awful lot of geothermal activity in this area. And you can just, driving around, you can see the steam coming up from the ground, you can also see there's lots of, um, I, was, I was very taken by the amount of geothermal power plants, which uh, have these huge steam plumes coming from the, from the uh, cooling towers. I think that's really what catches your eye initially. Um, and then in Topor, you have this huge lake, which is, is really enormous. And it's beautiful, but I think for many people first seeing it, they don't realize that that itself is a volcano. So no lava lakes here. Nope. Things are pretty different in this scenario. Not only are there no lava lakes, the magma underneath the surface is barely mobile. So um, we think that the reservoir probably spends most of its life with about 30% melt within it. So it sits there and that that is, um, so it's still active, it's still alive, 
But in that state, we think that it can't erupt. It's too immobile to actually erupt in that state. And so what happens prior to an eruption, and for reasons we don't understand particularly well, is that from that very large 30% melt body, the melt is extracted into a shallower, essentially pure melt system. And it's that, what we call a melt lens, which actually erupts. And so that's a, a really important consideration with Topor is that it's, it's a necessary precondition that that melt has to be brought out of the mush in order for it to erupt. And we don't really know much about why that happens. And is, is that part of what you're trying to monitor with figuring out some tools to look at what's happening under there? Yeah, so it's it's a very difficult question because we don't truly understand exactly what is the trigger for that happening. It also is important to know that even if it does happen, even if that melt is, is extracted, it doesn't necessarily erupt. It could then just go back into the mush state. So that's a real difficulty when we're trying to monitor these volcanoes is we don't have many examples to point to and say, this looks like that, because it just hasn't been seen. Oh, interesting. And and one of the big challenges then that you were working on in the paper that I sort of came across and, and was looking at is that Topo is maybe a somewhat unusual case of a volcano that's still quite active, but has this massive caldera lake, right? There are other examples of sort of large hotspot or other sort of large-scale continental volcanoes with big calderas, but they're not full of water. Yellowstone is what comes to mind. And we, what is the depth of Lake Topo? I don't actually know that off the top of my head. So maximum depth is about 200 meters, but on average it's about 100. Okay. So you're trying to look through 100 or 200 meters of water to be able to instrument what's actually happening at the volcano. And what were the, can you talk a little bit about what the challenges of that were? Yeah, so it certainly poses a challenge at Topol, um, and it is, it's quite different that the, the caldera is completely submerged by the lake. And you're right, at Yellowstone, for example, there are lakes, but it's not, it doesn't cover the whole caldera. With Topol, the lake is a, is a very large barrier to monitoring, and we currently don't have any monitoring equipment on the lake floor. Um, and I think it's important there to give a little bit of background to the history of Topor and um, some things of which are quite particular to the culture in New Zealand. So the the Iwi, which is uh, the tribe of the indigenous Māori in New Zealand, around the Topor area, that Iwi is called Nyati Tuwharitor. Um, and they have a long, long history of a deep connection with the volcanic landscape, particularly with Tongariro, the volcano to the south, but also with Lake Topol. And as part of their reparations with the New Zealand government and the Crown, they legally own the lake and the lake bed. And so they have they are guardians of the lake and um, do a fantastic job in protecting the water quality of the lake and have any say about anything that happens there. But that is not that process has not been without challenges. Relationships between the Iwi and the Crown are very difficult and and have a lot of painful histories so any observations that we want would want to do on the lake floor would have to be in collaborations with Nyati Tufaritor and that just needs and that's something that they're keen to do as well 
And some of what you've been monitoring in the meantime instead is about watching the lake level change, right? Instead of being able to watch at the lake bed, watching the impact on lake level at the surface, correct? Yeah, that's right. So that was a, a really cool study um, that we published uh, this year. So that was working with a, a guy called Peter Otway, who was a former surveyor, GNS Science, which is the the kind of geological survey of New Zealand. And he lived in Topor. And back in 1979, he developed a novel surveying technique that was using the lake water as a kind of reference level. So what he did is around the edge of the lake, he would find a solid piece of rock and would fasten measuring device into the rock and then dangle a kind of pendulum down into the water. And so the idea is that then if you correct for changes in the lake water itself if the rock was to move up then relative to that the lake would go down so you can kind of detect changes in the ground movement itself in a vertical sense by measuring changes in the relative water level Um, and so he set up these measuring statements these measuring stations all around the lake uh, back in 1979 and he's been taking these measurements for at least four times a year every year since. So we have over 40 years of data. And so it was really fun. He he actually sent me a letter in the first COVID-19 lockdown we had here in New Zealand. And so since then, so for the last couple of years, um, me, Peter, and um, another researcher here, um, Eleanor Mestel, we've been digitizing that data set and then looking at them as time series. And it's it's really fantastic because what's really unique about this data set and, and has so much value is that the 40 years of, well, 42 years of data that it represents it goes beyond our records of more modern instrumentation like GPS. I volunteer to do the part about going out in a boat in beautiful weather. <laughs> I know, right? It would be a really great way to understand the landscape and a pretty good day. Right. So is this similar to the eruptions we were talking about in Hawaii? Well, it's different in a lot of ways that we've heard about. But are heat and water still part of the equation? Is there any primary hazard right in the direct path of the eruption as it's starting to happen? I spoke in the other part of this podcast to someone in Hawaii and looking at sort of the phreatic eruptions that happen when the lava comes in contact with water. It's a very different eruptive style here. But what would be sort of the primary hazard of having that eruption take place into this massive volume of water potentially? Yeah, so it can, the interaction between that water and and, um, magma would tend to make the eruption more explosive, um, certainly in the early stages. Um, And we do see that when we look at the deposits from past eruptions. So for example, the last eruption from Topol was about 1800 years ago. And if you go in, and that eruption had multiple sequences in it. And if you go into the field and look at the deposits from that, you can see that some of the early stages have been altered by water interaction. And that would change the the explosivity. Um, we actually see from that eruption was, was so huge that it seems that later on in the eruption, the we see no interaction with water, which suggests that the either the water was completely thrown out or evaporated, or that there was a the the explosion, the eruption was powerful enough that it was just pushing the water aside and the magma was coming to the surface um, 
with no water interaction at all. There's also just so much more water here, though, that unlike Hawaii, the water is going to stick around and potentially lead to some other hazards. If it's not boiling off, where is all that water going to go in an eruption? Is there evidence in the rock record around the region of places that there's been, you know, uh, catastrophic dam breaches or building of dams or, you know, that kind of rapid landscape alteration that you're talking about when the outlets of the lake are changed? That might appear right in the rock record. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's, um, it's really interesting. So from the, so, so in Topol's eruptive, well, recent eruptive history, there's been two very large eruptions. There's the Oluanui super eruption, which was about 26,000 years ago, and the Topol eruption, which was in 232 AD. So about 1800 years ago. And in both of those, we see that the, the amount of material ejected was so much that it dammed up the outlet at the Waikato River. And so, for example, the Topo eruption 1800 years ago, we see that the the river was dammed and the water level of the lake rose by several meters. And we've, we think it was in that state for approximately a decade at this heightened uh, lake level. And then the dam, the sort of temporary dam that had been formed, burst and there was a catastrophic flood down the Waikato River which actually changed the course of the river um, so we can see if you look in the landscapes to the north of Topol you can see the former direction of that river um, and you and it's really interesting because if you look around Topol um, and you you be able to do this probably out your front door Avery you can see if you look around the lake there's a terrace around the side of the lake and in Topol town the the front of the town is on a terrace and that terrace is the beach that was formed during that decade when the lake level was at its higher point. It seems like water creates a lot of complications. I mean, volcanic eruptions are already a bit of a complication in life. True. But it also seems like there are some really cool ways that the lake is helping us to understand the volcano and its history. For sure. There are even more considerations here, though, because the lake is such a significant landscape feature. It's not really just the eruption itself that can cause complicated impacts. Yeah, I think another challenge that the lake poses is that because it's such a huge body of fresh water, from that and from development, the, it has increased the potential exposure of New Zealand to any future activity. So firstly, just the fresh water itself is a major supply of drinking water for New Zealand, all the way up to um, major cities like Hamilton still source their drinking water from, from Lake Topor. So if there was any, any volcanic activity then that was large enough to affect the water quality, that could be a real problem. Also, the, the, so the Lake Topor has one outlet, which is the Waikato River. And along that, I don't know how many, but there is multiple hydroelectric dams along the Waikato River, which, again, is a major proportion of New Zealand's electricity generation comes from this area. And so that would obviously bring hazards, potential flooding hazards, if there's some catastrophic failure of a, of a dam. But also, 
energy security in New Zealand could, could be really affected by even a relatively small eruption at Topol. Naturally, when people think of an eruption, particularly from Topol, people think about ash falling on them or lava or pyroclastic flows. And those are, those are terrible and could pose a really great hazard. But it's also these kind of more subtle secondary impacts from, from an eruption that, that could, have a, could actually have a longer lasting impact. And you can see, you know, 25,000 years of history of this volcano just right in front of you. You can touch it. I think that's um, a really amazing part of this landscape. So many things happening in this landscape. Right. And I said previously that it seemed like fire is winning, but with so much water uh, in the landscape, actually, really, I'm not sure who's who's winning between these two. I don't know. There's a lot going on with both of them in this landscape. But being that I'm in Topo right now and looking out on this huge, beautiful lake, I am just really happy to learn that at least the super volcano is not on its way anytime soon. <laughs> well, yeah. So <laughs> yay for no super volcanoes, at least in this in this current moment in this current moment yeah. oh right well well that's uh i, I would like that as a, a positive way to end so with that <laughs> i'm probably not gonna <laughs> blow up soon so that's key <laughs> all right well that's all from third pod from the sun thanks so much avery for bringing us this story and to jim and finn for sharing their work with us this episode was produced by Avery and me with audio engineering from Colin Warren. Artwork by Jay Steiner. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all and we'll see you next week. So are you from Chicago? I'm from or Minneapolis. Like that area? Yeah. Okay. Okay. But it was like, I mean, it's weird because it's like a song about a massive fire starting and running away from these like fatal flames. This hit, yeah, like, sorry, not did fun. You sing, did, did you sing the Titanic song? Maybe this is like a <laughs> the Titanic. Like they built oh my the, god! No. I have so many. They built so many the ship Titanic about... to sail the ocean blue, and they thought they had a ship that the water wouldn't go through. <laughs> this is amazing. But the good Lord raised and his hand and said, "This ship will never land." It was sad when the big boat went down. Glug glug glug. This is the kind of stuff we say at like daycare. Now I'm having oh really big. <laughs> I have really big feelings about my childhood. All of a sudden, oh my lord! Oh, this is so amazing. <sighs>